Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Good morning. All right, two quick things before we get going here. Number one, just want to remind us that we have our groundbreaking today, which we're really excited about. That is right across from the high school over off of Walker Road, and that will be at 3 p.m. We're really excited to uh, just celebrate and uh, rejoice with each other that we get to put a place, put a stake in the ground, something physical that will be able to serve our community, serve this church for years to come. So really excited about that. Second of all, if you at any point during the service just want to remind us that we have these wonderful prayer team members that uh, every single week serve us. And if the Lord is stirring something in your heart that you just want to be uh, uh, you prayed for, you want to pray with someone at any time after the message and during uh, worship afterwards and even after the service, you guys can go back to the prayer table and uh, pray with our people. Well, this morning we're starting a new series and uh, I'm just got to be honest, today's going to be a little bit of a work day in church. We're going to have to really dig in. We're going to have to do some groundwork. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, pull out to Amos chapters one and two. Um, if you got your phones, it'll be a little bit easier to find than if you got a paper Bible. I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation this morning. Um, so if you have the little Bible app, you can flip to that. Uh, if you are in one of the paper Bibles, Amos is towards the end of the Old Testament, so about three quarters of the way through uh, your Bible. And uh, by the way, this series also is, is this very resource-heavy series. There's a lot to dig into. And so at any point, if you want to know kind of where Mark and I are gathering some of our inspiration and some of our, 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 our ideas and, and, and interpretations, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. If, if you're like, I want to dig into this more, uh, I would love to be able to email you some of those uh, resources just for further reading. If not, not a big deal either, uh, either way. Well... If you know anything about Martin Luther King Jr., you know that he stood as a bastion of hope and justice in a time in our country's history where it was dearly needed. And if you know anything about MLK, then you for sure have at least hopefully at some point in your school career listened to his 1963 speech on the March on Washington called I Have a Dream. We all know that, right? And behind the uh, phrase, I have a dream, the second most famous phrase from that speech is, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like rivers, until righteousness flows in like a mighty stream. Now, there's two things that often go overlooked or just forgotten about MLK, especially today, because people love to quote them. First, MLK was first a pastor. He loved God, and God loved him, and he knew that. 
And so everything that MLK did, even though he was an amazing civil rights advocate, was flowing out of this deep knowledge of who God was, who he had created him to be, and who he had created humanity to be. And the second thing that people forget about the I have a dream speech and the famous line, we will not be satisfied until justice flows down like rivers, until righteousness like a mighty stream, is that MLK was actually plagiarizing. He didn't write those words. He didn't come up with them. In fact, he's quoting somebody that had said those words almost 3,000 years before. And that guy, his name is Amos. He's the namesake of the series that we're about to jump into. He's the author of the book that we're about to read. And we're going to try to dig into Amos's message. You know, like, does it have implications for our lives today? Of course it will. But first, we got to lay some groundwork. Today, like I said, is kind of a work day, right? So let's talk about Amos. First, Amos is a prophet. Now, a lot of us probably know the big names like Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. Those names come to our forefront of our minds when I mention the name prophet, but probably not many of us have usually read those guys, and most of us would probably not even know that Amos is in the Bible, and that's okay. It's a tiny little book near the end of the Old Testament. And the average Christian, when they think of prophets, they think of these, you know, doom and gloom fanatics always just talking about God's judgment, uh, forecasting the future. And of course, sometimes they talked about heavy things, and a lot of times they did forecast future events, but this is only a little bit about what the prophets were about. In its simplest terms, God's prophets were simply the mouthpiece of God. They were the people that God had called to speak his word into the world in their time, in their place. And oftentimes, because they spoke the unvarnished truth, they paid dearly for it. They paid dearly for it. But if the prophets spoke for God, we got to listen. We got to listen to what they have to say. But there's another thing that we got to know. Amos is not just a prophet, but Amos is a specific prophet for a specific time. Now, we got to kind of back up to understand this. We got to understand the big, wide picture of scripture, the meta narrative it's called, where God creates humanity in his own image to walk with him, be like him, be in relationship with him. And then sin enters the world and God finds a new way to bring his people back to himself. And so he takes this man named Abraham and he says, through you now, I'm going to bless all nations. From Abraham was born the people of Israel who became God's vehicle to show the world what God was really like. And then through Israel will come the Messiah who will bring all peoples back to God yet again in the consummation of all things. So Amos is a prophet to Israel in a specific time in their people's history. The year is 931 BC. The, the people of Israel have now split because of their sin and brokenness into two different countries. You have Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. And in Judah in the south is Jerusalem and Jerusalem is still supposed to be the epicenter for where Yahweh is supposed to be worshipped. But there's this king named Jeroboam in the north in Israel. 
And you know what Jeroboam does? He says, I don't care. You can't go down there and worship Yahweh. You're going to have to worship him here. And I'm going to create the shrine in Bethel. And not only is this supposed to be for the worship of Yahweh, but instead of honoring Yahweh, I'm going to put idols in it. And you're going to worship these idols. And not only are you going to worship these idols as if they are Yahweh, but you're going to worship them the way that the pagans worshiped their gods. You're going to do things as disgusting as child sacrifice, like the pagans would do to worship their God of Moloch. And so, as Jeroboam establishes these shrines, this becomes a statement of how sinful Israel has become. It becomes a statement of God's people rejecting not just how to worship Yahweh, but how to live a life right before his eyes. So they're just surrounded by all of these pagan nations. And instead of showing the nations what God is like, they just say, it feels better to be like them. So they worship power, money, sex. And then that sin just gets to creep in more and more in their life. The world begins to shape what they are like, and they do what the nations do. They oppress people, specifically the oppressed the marginalized and poor and powerless. They treat them unjustly. They strip them of their rights, all so that they could live a more luxurious life. And when we got to ask the question, what is defining your worship? Is it Yahweh? Is it God? Is it the way that the world works? Because Amos sees this, and, and Amos is a prophet, so he becomes this relational watchdog where he says, Israel, this is your identity. You are God's chosen people, but you don't look like God. You look like the pagan nations. And he speaks against it. Now, who is Amos specifically? Amos is simply a fig tree farmer and a lowly shepherd from Tekoa in the south. This guy isn't an Oxford scholar. He's not a biblical professor. God takes an ordinary dude that has the guts to respond to the call of God in his life, and he walks straight up to Bethel, right into the white-hot center of all of this bastardized worship, and he says, enough, Israel enough. And he says this. Let's read the text this morning. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four I will not relent because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. 
For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza and I will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Taman that will consume the fortresses of Basra. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not relent because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile. He and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kiriath. Moab will go down like great tumult amid war cries and the blast of trumpet. I will destroy her ruler, kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah, even for four. I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. And here's where Amos lasers in on God's people. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel, even for four. I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots before, below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youth. Is it not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand on his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Okay. Still here? That's a lot. It's a lot. We're gonna to start to unpack this. Now notice the opening line of Amos 
says that he's here to speak against Israel. In other words, he's here to accuse Israel. But then he begins by talking about all of the other nations. And I want you to watch what happens because just as he goes down the list of nations like Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Ammon, he lists all of these places like Moab and Edom and Judah. We actually have a, a map from, from the Bible project that kind of shows what God is doing. If you look at the map and you look at the position of all of these nations, God, through Amos, is just encircling Israel like he's putting Israel in the middle of his crosshairs. And by the time he gets to Israel, God's people, you think that his accusations, if they were actually like God's people, would be less to them, but they're three times longer than any accusation that he brings against Moab, Ammon, Damascus, Tyre, Judah, Gaza, Edom. And you're left like wondering, what is going on here? And what does Amos accuse them of? Well, if you look at chapter two, verses six and seven, he says this, this is what the Lord says, for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. In other words, Amos says to Israel, you look just like them. You live unjust lives. You are living and doing injustice. Where the wealthy are exploiting the poor, the marginalized, and they're oppressing them further, selling them into debt slavery, just for some common luxuries for a dang pair of sandals, Amos says. And not only that, once they sell them into debt slavery, they deny them legal justice, and not only that, but they live sexually immoral lives, and they worship Yahweh the way the pagans worship their gods. And the result, Amos says, you have profaned the name of God. And you know, we don't talk about sin this way in church. You know, like I, I appreciate how sometimes we talk about sin as brokenness, or we've fallen short, or... Uh, we've missed the mark. But when we're afraid to call sin, sin, we do not understand the gravity of what it is doing. Sin destroys God's creation. It is the reason the world is groaning in the pain. It is the reason that the world is in chaos. And one of the results of this infection that is in the heart of every person and even God's people is injustice. And God cares deeply about justice. And we are not Israel, but we can learn from their mistakes because while Israel was the vehicle through which God would bring hope to the world, now we, the church, are the vehicle through which God will share the message of hope of Jesus with the world. And we do that through justice and righteousness. And you know, justice is talked a whole lot about today. Some people, you're just getting uncomfortable in your seats from even mentioning it. 
You know, we have this word social justice. Some people, it's their functional religion. Some people, they don't want anything to do with it. So there's just all of this kind of cloudiness and chaos around the word justice, and so nobody can have a real conversation about what it is if you gather a bunch of people that are educated in the same room together, and you talk about things like abortion or the war in Ukraine, or you talk about civil rights, or you talk about immigration, and you bring up the issue of justice, just watch the chaos ensue as people try to decipher and talk with one another about what is truly just. And I was thinking about it this week. And the reason that that is, is because people don't have a common definition of what justice is. This is why people get so sensitive when they talk about justice today. There's so much shame just covering this conversation. And so what I want to invite us into as we continue through the book of Amos is sitting under the biblical definition of what justice is, the one that God says is. I don't care how conservative you are. I don't care how liberal you are. You need to throw those definitions in the garbage and sit underneath the text if you are going to call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. And what I want us to see this morning is three things. First, God is the foundation of all justice. Second, that God wants you as a result to act justly. And finally, that biblical justice brings healing and restoration. I grew up in Minneapolis and I have a good friend that is not a believer and I've been praying for for a while and been trying to share the gospel and so Speaking of injustice, when all of the George Floyd stuff happened a few years ago, uh, I just saw it as an opportunity to have some of these deeper conversations where uh, we were just talking about how wrong it was that that happened to him. And of course, I knew that it was wrong, but seeing it as an opportunity to share some hope with him in an interesting way, I remember having a conversation with him and be like, uh, you know, how do you know that what happened to George was wrong? Like, how do you know? Why was it wrong? And he was like, well, everybody just knows that it's wrong. They said, really? So the police officer didn't know that it was wrong. He said, but yeah, but, yeah, but everyone has this common sensibility that it's wrong. And I said, but yeah, but why is it wrong? To which he answered, well, human beings matter. And my response was, why do human beings matter? He couldn't answer me. Why do they matter? Why is that unjust? Because you can have an idea of justice apart from God, but you cannot anchor it. You have zero foundation if you do not worship God. And here's the point. Many people have a sense of justice. We have this sense of justice because we've been created in the image of a just God. And that sense of justice has, yes, been tainted. But just like you can't divorce MLK from being a God-fearing man, similarly, you cannot divorce the idea of justice from a biblical worldview. I don't think that anyone has done a better job of explaining our, perf- uh, our current predicament when we talk about justice than this guy by the name of Alistair McIntyre. And he has this wonderful wrist- wristwatch illustration where he shows that it's absolutely foolish to try to define justice apart from God, where he says, how am I supposed to know if a wristwatch is good or bad unless I know the telos or the purpose of that wristwatch, unless I know what that wristwatch is for? I could pull out a wristwatch and start hammering nails with it, but it wouldn't be very good at that. 
Or I could pull out a wristwatch and realize that it's made for telling the time, and then that wristwatch is pretty good at what it's supposed to be doing. And in the same way, he goes on to explain that you cannot have a definition of what is good or bad for humanity unless you know its telos, unless you know their purpose, unless you know what human beings are for. Because lots of people have feelings about injustice, but if human beings just base their uh, idea of justice about what they feel, then how do we know who wins out? What if my feeling is that justice is for me to harm you? And see, we have this in our culture today. So many people are the same people that are yelling for justice are the ones that are saying, but just live your truth. Well, what if my truth is to hurt you? Who wins out? You cannot have a definition of justice apart from God unless you know what human beings are for. And MLK gave up his life for civil rights because he knew what human beings were for. He knew Psalm 139 that says that we were knit together in our mother's womb by God himself. He knew Genesis 1 that said that we were made uniquely in the image of God for a purpose. He knew the words of Jesus that said that human beings were above everything in the created order, unique in dignity, equal in value. And so he gave up his life for that. And so we too can know what justice is when we look at the just God that we worship. But you cannot have a foundation for justice without him. That doesn't mean you can't do nice things. That doesn't mean you can't have an idea of justice. You will just have no way of actually backing up why that justice is right or why that injustice is wrong if you do not worship God. You cannot do it. And Amos comes with a message from God and he says, you're living in injustice. You sell the innocent for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals. You trample on the heads of the poor. You deny justice to the oppressed, and so you profane my holy name. Justice is not subjective. There is no room for subjectivity within justice because justice comes from God, who is an objective reality. Therefore, justice is objective, which is why God is not just the foundation of justice, but God wants you to act justly. This word justice in the book of Amos is the Hebrew word mishpat. Everyone say mishpat. Mishpat. And this word is both an action item and a state of being. Mishpat is living in right relationship with God. It's living in right relationship with one another, and it's living in right relationship with creation. That is what justice is. That is what mishpat is. But mishpat isn't just that. Mishpat is actions taken to correct injustices in our world. So when people are living in right relationship with God and then right relationship with each other and right relationship with God's created order, they're living out God's mishpat, his justice. And this is why Amos starts by reminding them of their identity because from their identity flows their behavior. And he says, this is not who you are, Israel. You are God's people. And then he calls out their actions because to act justly is to just be like God. To do justice is to be like God as he does justice. 
And so let's start with three implications from this text today. This is not exhaustive. That's why I talked about the resources. There's so much more that could be said. First, money and community. God's provision for the world is for all people. Everything flows out of his generosity, and that means that it is not ours. It is ours to use for God's glory, for our good, and for the good of others. So that means to act justly is that if someone has a need in your sphere of influence and you have the means to help that person in their need, it is your responsibility to help that person in their need. This is what it means to act justly. This is doing justice. This is why when Jesus comes, he not only cares for the rich, but he cares for the poor. When people are hungry, he feeds the 5,000. When people need healing, he brings it so that when people feed the homeless today or people get a Kickstarter going for their friend that is going through cancer treatment so that they can get the treatment that they need to be healed, they aren't just doing nice things. They're actually doing justice. That's what it means to be like God, to be like Jesus. Second, God doesn't play favorites. There is no pitting one human being against another human being in the kingdom of God. So when it comes to racism, God does not value one race over the other. When it comes to the issue of abortion, God does not value the life of the mother over the value of the child or the child over the value of the mother. There is no pitting each other up against each other. And when it comes to being an American, we cannot be against the foreigner. Why? Because you were foreign to God in your sin. You were an exile to God in your sin. And God brought you in. He doesn't play favorites. America is not God's country. It doesn't mean we can't be grateful for what we have here. But to do justice is to be like God. We value all humanity at an equal and level playing field because we do that. And when we do that, we're like God. This is what it means to act justly. But thirdly, you are personally responsible for your sin and you are responsible for advocating for others. How does that work? Everybody in this room will stand before, on their two feet before God on the day of judgment. And you will be with Christ or you won't be with Christ, but you will stand on your own two feet and you will give an account for your sin. There's personal responsibility. So if you sin against someone, it is your responsibility to do justice, to make things right. But also, when we see injustice happening to others, it is our responsibility to be an advocate for them, to step in the gap, to step up for injustice, to stand as an advocate for those that cannot advocate for themselves. Why? Because God advocates for us in Christ. Jesus and the Spirit are advocates for us. We are sinful and unholy before God, but they stand in the way and they say, treat human beings based off of our merit. My merit, Jesus says, not their own. So we, to act justly, must be like Jesus, be an advocate for others. And there's way more that could be said, but we need to move on. And so Amos says, the problem, Israel, the real root of the problem, you don't look like Yahweh. You don't look like the one who created you. Biblical justice. 
God is the foundation for all justice. God therefore wants us to act justly. And lastly, justice brings healing and restoration. I don't know if you got a little bit off put by some of the language that Amos uses. It's kind of like doom and gloomy, right? And I don't know if you noticed verse 13 when he says this, now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes with loaded grain. What's going on there? What is going on when Amos says, I will crush you as a cart crushes with loaded with grain? Well, I think two things happen. Number one, Israel will have real world consequences for their sin, but there is an ultimate fulfillment of this specific verse that the other prophet Isaiah points out in Isaiah 53. Look at this, it's unbelievable. Speaking of Jesus, he grew up before him like a tender shrewd, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. People go, I don't like the idea of an angry God. I don't like the idea of God's wrath. But any person that understands a relationship between a parent and their child knows what wrath feels like. If you see your child in pain because of some injustice that was committed to them, your first response, if it isn't wrath, something's a little bit off. This is the love of God for his creation. He sees the world groaning in pain. He sees the injustice that is the result of the sin of the world. And rather than force humanity to pay the price they could never pay, he puts himself on the chopping block for us. And like a cart just loaded down with heaping loads of grain that crushes the wheels beneath its weight, so does our sin crush Christ to a pulp. But only God could take that sin, defeat it, resurrect from the grave so that we would know just how loved we are. And now we stand justified before God. This is what the justice of God means. There was justice that was brought down on Christ as he experienced injustice so that we could stand before God guiltless on the day of judgment. How good of news is that? 
And now we get to be like God. You know, some of the reasons, of the re- so many of the times, the reason that we don't act in injustice, I believe, is because we think, or we act in doing justice, is because we feel so much shame about all the bad stuff that's going on in our world. But what if we just knew that we were guiltless, spotless before God? that he saw us as pure and unblemished because he was crushed on our behalf and by his wounds, we are healed. Then we would be able to do justice out of the freedom of God's love for us and we would not do it out of guilt and shame. Then we could care for people because we could just see how far we were from God and when they commit sin against us, we can forgive them as God forgives us. This is what it means to be healed by his wounds. And the last thing that I want to say is that some of you still just can't get over the language that Amos uses about the punishment that God is bringing because of the sins of the nations, the sins of Israel. Well, the, the, the biblical writer, John, he knows this. And he wants you to know this. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. In other words, if you hear me this morning saying, shame on you, you're a horrible person, that is Satan, not God. What you should be hearing is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the sin is real, but the Savior is just as real. And he came and he took the punishment for us. So we don't need to live in fear because perfect love casts out fear. And that love came to us through Christ. And therefore, we can go do justice love mercy, and walk in humility with God. Let's pray. God, we want to do justice in your world, but oftentimes we confess that we do not do it because we live in shame and guilt and fear. We confess that we believe the lie that by correcting the things that need to be corrected that we are admitting that things aren't the way that they are supposed to be. But when we look at the gospel, we recognize that we can admit that things are not the way that they are supposed to be, but that we have been made justified in you. That we stand guiltless because of your son. And that out of that perfect love that casts out fear of punishment, because you have taken the punishment for us, we can act justly. God, you love justice. You want to see a world that is just. And every time we act justly, the kingdom just breaks in an inch at a time, Lord. And we just ask that you continue to do that through us this morning. And as we walk through our lives, God, help us. We need your help. We have to have your help. We cannot do this on our own. Our sin is too big, but your love is bigger. So we rest on you today, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. 
We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.